Hello, welcome to Four Questions. Today we're discussing civil wars and their impact. So we know civil wars create tremendous brutality, deaths, and destruction. But how do they influence people's interactions, their trust, and their entrepreneurial zeal? This is really hard to measure. So we could try to understand this through within-country variation, those more or less exposed to conflict, but this obfuscates shared experience of uncertainty. So two brilliant minds, Owen Ogier, economist at the World Bank, and Pam Jaquila, associate professor at Maryland, did something fairly different. They did a natural experiment by mistake. So you two did this experiment, and you'll cert- well, you did it as a survey, and your survey got interrupted. The 2007 post-election crisis, a thousand dead, hundreds of thousands internally displaced, months of conflict, ethnic tensions, and your survey was put on hold. And let me jump in right there, exactly. The survey was put on hold, and that's the key to this whole design. You see, in the middle of the survey, there was a long list of people to be surveyed in this project, and they were broadly similar to one another. In fact, the order of some of the surveys had actually been randomized so that the people being surveyed in the run-up to the post-election crisis in Kenya in 2007 were broadly similar to those who were surveyed in the aftermath of the crisis. The only difference is this experience of the violent post-election crisis. And we see this very large effect. And we should say that this wasn't our doing. So this long survey where uh, people were randomly assigned to different waves waves was not our project at all. We'd just been brought in by Ted Miguel. The great Ted Miguel. (laughs) Yes, the great Ted Miguel, uh, who'd offered us, who'd asked us if we could design a way of measuring risk preferences that... uh, Yes, so how do you test risk conversion? That seems really tricky. Yeah, so we take, we take something, a variant on the standard approach that's used by experimental and behavioral economists. So we ask people to make lottery choices, so to choose between different risky prospects. So maybe we offer you a choice between receiving 100 shillings for sure and a 50% chance of receiving 400 shillings. Or receiving nothing if the thing goes bad. Or receiving nothing. Uh, and so this is a common approach. Uh, It's often done in what we call incentivized experiments, so where the payoffs are real. Uh, What we did was think carefully about how we could uh, embed questions like this into a survey. And so the approach that we took... A survey, mind you, of 5,000 people running over the course of a couple of years. So whatever we were going to add was going to have to be pretty simple and straightforward Mm. to execute. Mm. Right. So we... So we spent some time piloting and working out very simple lottery Mm. choice questions like the one I described that even people with relatively low levels of education, low levels of numeracy Mm. could comfortably answer. Mm. Uh, And we uh, embedded this sequence that started with extremely simple questions uh, into the survey. And I should say that we also spent a lot of time piloting and working out instructions where we don't assume any familiarity with probability or anything like that. Uh, We introduce notions of equally likely outcomes and the lottery structure. Okay, cool. So what do you find? Well, we find this really dramatic change. We find that people are much less likely to be willing to take the kind of profitable risk that Pam just described. That is, do you want 100 shillings for sure or a 50-50 chance at 400? It's, on average, a much better idea to do that second thing. 
But people were suddenly much less willing to do that second thing, something like 10 percentage points less likely to do it. And we see that in question after question that we ask. It's a big change. We also see changes in trust that people claim that they're less likely to see other people as being trustworthy in the aftermath of this post-election crisis. Okay, but well, let, me, let me stop you there because this is just a survey and does it really track people's behavior? Like this is just how people answer a hypothetical yeah, question. Yeah, sure, sure. Does it really matter in the real world? Well, because we were doing these unincentivized questions, this is something we were really concerned about. And so what we're able to show in the cross section is that, uh, is that how you answer these risk aversion questions also predict two survey, two behaviors that are in the survey that we think are related to your tolerance for risk. So mm -hmm. one is whether you migrate to the city uh, or have ever migrated to the city, and the other is whether uh, you have ever started your own business. And so these are things that we think from a theoretical perspective are likely to be driven by a lot of factors, but your tolerance for risk should be one of them. And we see that uh, our measure, our survey measure of risk attitudes does predict these. And so that gives us some oh, greater confidence. Uh, okay, so I can get that because migrating to the city is you're going, you don't know if you've got a job. So it's a risky prospect. So I get that that sort of might tell us about risk. But here's a question, is, willingness to migrate is migration to urban areas really telling us about risk per se or is it telling us about concerns about violence in urban areas because let's not forget you know during the kenyan post-election violence most of that violence was in nairobi right and there was indeed a lot of violence in urban areas and you might have thought as I think you're suggesting, that urban areas are suddenly less safe than you yeah. thought previously. But rather than saying it's the change in the willingness to have migrated to an urban area mm -hmm. to look for a job that is informing us about risk preferences, actually it's the other way around. We have been asking these questions in the survey that are totally divorced from any particular context. So even if a city is more dangerous, why should that influence in the moment of a survey your decision to say I would take 400 mm. shillings on a 50 Yeah, the chance. abstract. Mm. That abstract question is the thing that we see move uh, really dramatically. Now you might think uh, there are other things going mm. on. It's not just mm. I'm less willing to move to the city. Um, maybe it's that the economic conditions mm. have changed. Yes. So maybe I'm less willing to do uh, risky economic activities. What's interesting is we see that for these people it's not that it actually hurt their incomes. It's not that it actually made it harder. There was no post-conflict fall in incomes? Not for these individuals oh, in right. our survey. Mm. Uh, and so it, it, maybe it's important that our group of the population that this survey is following is uh, a lot of it is in a rural area. And so a lot of it's sort of not sitting mm. right next to the violence itself. Uh, but they don't see such a, uh, any marked decline in incomes. They do think, they report that they think that economic conditions have gotten worse. Mm. But in terms of their actual experience, we don't see such a decline. Okay, but here's a question. Even if objective conditions aren't worse, even if average incomes haven't fallen in that area, is it possible that it's not that people became less risk averse, but rather they thought the potential gains were lower after the violence? So they thought that incomes were worse, so there's less point in setting up a business if you don't think you can make so much money. That's not about risk aversion, that's just about what you think is going to be profitable. But we're, but we're measuring your risk aversion directly. So, mm. so we're, we're able to show that this measure in the pre-election 
period and the post-election period is associated with these things like setting up a business or migration. But we're actually just directly measuring the impact of the conflict on your preferences. So of course these other factors may play into whether you actually do set up a business or migrate. Almost every decision yeah. that involves risk also involves beliefs and other, and other attitudes. Something that you said, maybe these things are all tied together. Mm -hmm. Maybe if I've internalized this belief that things are worse economically now, and now I simply think that no matter what the domain, no matter how abstract the question, I simply shouldn't take risks anymore in the mm. way that I used to. Well, that's exactly the effect that we're looking for. It's this change in my beliefs about what risks I should take in the world. So maybe rather than being sort of a problem for the study, maybe that's actually the thing that we found. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think there's, that's the importance of having these two methodologies by not only tracking people's behavior and showing that's associated with the risk and then having the survey and the survey tells you know informs our decision that it's about riskiness and risk aversion rather than something else but here's a question is this really about risk aversion in general or is it about a particular kind of risk aversion so i appreciate you don't include this in your in your natural ted mcgrell's natural experiment but it'd be interesting to see if there was reduced risk taking in other domains so for example do we see higher condom use after the electoral violence i mean in a context of hiv aids that's a risky thing to do or maybe what you're showing is that there's a change in a very specific kind of risk taking so not wanting to do business in unknown office you know reflecting a loss of trust or jeopardizing very fragile economic gains so do we think that we're showing seeing uh, you know because your survey questions asked about money right right so it's interesting so uh the issue of course is that these decisions do you know real world decisions do involve a combination of preferences over risk and prices and you know the marginal utility of consumption so how much you need the money may change after the crisis so Pascaline Dupont and John Robinson have some work showing that uh, sex workers were more likely to do engage in risky sex acts after the crisis mm. uh, presumably because there was more need for money at that time uh, so I mean I think at some level, there are, when we look at real world behaviors, it's a bit difficult to untangle a change in preferences mm -hmm. from a change in the other factors yes. that come into your actual choices. And so this is why economists really like to use these preference elicitation experiments, because you can focus in on only the preference component in a choice that doesn't involve all these other factors. Yeah. And this is something we've had, we've found in a lot of other, in attempting to validate different measures of risk aversion, is that so many of your choices that would involve risk that you might survey somebody about, so whether you filter your water or things like that, they also relate to wealth, they also relate to beliefs about uh, that in ways that may or may not be related to preferences, and so they're not actually good indicators of your risk tolerance, this, those survey responses, because they can be confounded mm. by other things like your socioeconomic status or your beliefs or the information that you have. So you find that risk aversion falls after the conflict. Is that something that we need to be concerned about and is that something we need to tackle? Do we need to increase risk taking in order to boost the economic growth, job creation or entrepreneurialism? Well, I think there are two reasons to be interested in this finding. So one is that we do think a lot of economic growth has to do with individual decisions to take profitable risks, mm. to start businesses, to take a stab at getting the education that you think will pay off in a longer job. A lot of these things that relate to growth are 
long-term risks that people are willing to take because they think they're going to pay off. Mm. And in aggregate, those are drivers of the economy. Mm. And so I think if people are less willing to take risks, profitable risks, mm. then that can potentially dampen economic growth. The other reason to care about these findings is that risk, of, risk preferences are in fact important in themselves. So when we think about people's welfare, mm. that depends on their level of risk aversion. So is somebody actually happier, better off with uh, a lower payoff versus a higher payoff but more uncertainty? Yeah. We as development economists should care not just about average incomes but about people's welfare. And so yeah. knowing their level of risk tolerance and what their utility function as economists would say looks like is important when we think about how to evaluate programs that may change people's, Ooh, yeah. people's incomes and their risk profiles in the long term. And so it's important to have measures of these risk preferences and to know how policies and events are likely to change them so that we know what that can think about what that means for welfare. That's a really cool distinction. So I guess you've got two points. You can either say either the preference is a problem and we need to change the preference or we need to take the preference for given and redesign the policies in a way that, that promotes that particular preference. Or yeah. that, uh, that aligns with it. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think, yes. I think as an economist, I would be hesitant to ever say preferences are a problem. They're, you know, they're what they are. Mm. But we want to have an awareness of them when we think about what the impact of policies are likely to be. And if there are interactions between events in a country, policies in a country, and people's preferences, then it's very important for us to know how, how those are going to go so that we can think about how people's welfare is going to change over time. Maybe the classic example that you like to bring up is uh, of agriculture, that some agricultural technologies uh, can increase yields on average, but may, in depending on the technology, increase the risk that people mm. face. So leave aside starting your own enterprise, the adoption of some types of agricultural technology involves taking some risks. Mm. And so What's the right thing for people to do depends on how much risk they're willing to yeah. bear uh, in some of these situations. So this is one of the many contexts in which knowing how people approach risk and how they feel about risk helps us think what policies would actually And I think benefit. this could also be used to strengthen the case for cash transfers because that provides social security like a guaranteed basic income. And then, you know, if you've got a set of people who are really worried about losing everything and really averse to risk, you know, usually when we evaluate cash transfers, we just look at improving the aggregate income. We don't look at whether it's soothing people's concerns and anxiety and uncertainty. So maybe that's another thing that could be incorporated into future surveys about development policy, you know, not just cash transfers, but policy in general. Are they reducing something that, uh, so, okay, let me rephrase that. Are these development policy interventions reducing something that people care about that we previously weren't testing because we didn't realize how important risk aversion was to Kenyans? But I example? think that, I mean, this relates to, you know, stress was one of the key mm -hmm. outcomes mm -hmm. that uh, Johannes and Jeremy were looking at mm -hmm. in the Give Directly study. And so I think there is an awareness that these types of social policies that give people a minimum standard can have welfare impacts over and above the changes in mm -hmm. average income mm -hmm. because they're providing this sort of basic insurance mm -hmm. or basic consumption mm -hmm. level that can make people better off, particularly very risk-averse mm -hmm. people. That is to say, the average isn't the only thing that matters mm -hmm. about an income. Mm -hmm. Cool. Okay, 
So let's think about the wider literature on conflicts. How do your findings on the impacts of conflicts enhance uh, the general body of knowledge about the impacts of conflict? How does this help? So uh, lots of people in lots of disciplines have looked at the impact of conflict mm -hmm. and uh, the fact that this, you know, terrible coincidence of events produces a natural experiment in Kenya, we think probably has lessons beyond Kenya's borders. Um, the challenge in doing any of these kinds of studies in ours or in any previous mm -hmm. one is finding a counterfactual, is establishing two groups of people. Yeah, how do people usually do this? How exactly. do they usually test impacts of conflict? How do you find two groups that are the same, that yeah. is, except for their mm. exposure to conflict? Uh, well, one of the best studies to date in Afghanistan is, is very clever and it compares people who were very close to violent events in Afghanistan that were successfully carried out and compares those to people who were very close to attempted violent events that were not successfully carried out. So both areas that these people are living in in Afghanistan, they're both targeted in exactly the same way. They're very similar people, except for some of these violent events actually took place. And it's a very sensible comparison. And this is the kind of design that you see in lots of these studies. Things that just happen to be affected and just happen not to be affected. So geographical variation geographical, within the country. Right. But then that's within the same country and within the same time. So when you compare people in these sorts of two places, uh, or in these two sorts of places, there's something that they have in common, though, that you're differencing out. They both live in a country or a city or a mm. time of relatively high violence. And so you're getting this effect of marginally more exposure to violence. That's what they all measure. But they're but both living through war. They're right. both living through war or something like war, depending on the context. Yeah. And if that war or if that violent climate has an effect overall, that sort of study design can't find it. But that is exactly the sort of thing that we're measuring in this study. And in the and in the Callan et al. Afghanistan study, that comes through really clearly in that they have this nice identification when you look at events that are within half a kilometer, mm. I believe, mm. of, of your polling place. But when they raise it to events that occur within three kilometers of your mm. polling place, mm. most of the people in their sample have had a violent event occur within three kilometers of their polling place. So that tells you something about how all of these people are actually exposed to conflict in their lives at a relatively high level, but some are a little bit more exposed than others. The violence hits a little bit closer to them than others. Mm. So that sort of marginal identification is a really great identification strategy, but it is, as Owen said, differencing out these overall effects of living in a time of, of conflict and crisis. So why can't you just do normal before and after conflict studies? Usually a lot of other things are changing with time. Mm. And usually it's very hard to find a group of people that's exactly the same over time. Let's say you found the people who lived in a city a year before the conflict and a year after the conflict. The thing is they're different people. Right. Uh, so the nice thing, if you will, about this context is that there's this group of people, a list of whom was made well in advance. Uh, and it's only this sort of event that, as a natural experiment, mm. as you termed mm. it, that, that interrupts the survey that makes these people different. Uh, otherwise, I think it's very hard, both in terms of economic conditions changing over time and the groups of people you would find changing over time. So the before-after thing is really hard, unless it's a sort of knife edge before-after. It's this group of people mm. that you've made a list of in advance, and, and that's exactly what we have here. So other surveys have used different methods. Have they come to different findings? Yeah, it's interesting. So a lot of the surveys that have used these kind of marginal exposure identification strategies have found that conflict seems to make people more willing to bear risk. And other studies looking at social preferences have found that conflict makes people more pro-social, more politically engaged. And our study really sort of 
is a footnote to that or an asterisk saying, but be careful because there may be these overall average effects that you're differencing out that we should be less, less sanguine about in that it may be impacting society, making society you know, less cooperative, less trusting, less willing to bear risk in aggregate, even when the marginal person who lives through and survives these things looks... So wait, you're saying that because their research methodology is different, that might explain why they get more positive results. And if we yes. use a natural experiment method as you have, where each person has equal chance of being interviewed, each person who's had this same macro experience of the whole conflict, then we might see these negative outcomes in terms of trust and risk aversion. That is to say, maybe both things are true. It's not that one study is wrong and the other one's right or the other way around. They're two different natural experiments, right? So one natural experiment is I'm close to the violence mm. and you're a bit further away and I come away feeling more pro-social, more, more engaged, more willing to take risks for whatever reason. That's Let's say that's absolutely true and it's a natural experiment mm. that the violent thing happened closer to me than mm. it did to you. But the thing that we've both lived through is subtracted away when yeah. we compare the two of us in the same time and in the same place. If we compare maybe exactly the same two of us to two other people just like us who hadn't yet lived through this whole period of violence, mm. that's where we see people becoming less trusting of one another and right. people becoming more unwilling to take risks. So that's the way that the, the two different kinds of natural experiment complement one another. And of course you may have different reactions in different places. There might not be one universal rule of human behavior, etc. Of course. Okay, so summing up, let me make sure I've got this straight. You did an actual experiment but by mistake and you discovered that violent conflict in Kenya increases risk aversion. And this is useful in helping us think about people's preferences and how to understand them. Absolutely right. I think it helps us think through how violence affects us as a society and how flexible and malleable our preferences mm, really are yeah. in relation to the events that go on around us. I think it's this thing that started to happen in economics over the last couple of decades that we're no longer taking for granted that people are these fixed agents with preferences yeah. that are a given. So this is part of that bigger picture. Uh, it's not just about violence, it's about what the malleability of preferences. Exactly. Well, as my very first family podcast, I thank you both for having out for this amazing paper and, and sharing it with us all. Thank you, Alice, for having us Yeah, on. thank you, Alice. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs>